0: Well, hello, True North. How are we doing this morning? How about just a show of thumbs? How are we doing this morning? Awesome, awesome. It's great to be with you, and it feels crazy to say it, but we are now halfway through our vision series titled True North, leading lives that point to Jesus, or more specifically, leading internal lives pointed by Jesus in order to then lead external lives that point to Jesus. So if you weren't able to catch our first few messages, I would strongly encourage you to check them out or even refresh yourself, um, especially since we are taking on these applications and practices together as a community. Um, They're available on YouTube and now as a podcast on Spotify. It's exciting, exciting times. Um, So we started out by asking the question, where does our inner compass point? You know, where does the inner compass of our mind, heart, soul, and whole body point? And does it point to Jesus, to his kingdom, and to the will of God for our lives? Or does it struggle to find true north? Or does it point to everywhere but north, you know, anywhere but God? In a world where so many forces attempt to push us to and fro, where so many voices compete to be our gods, it's all too easy to get tossed around by the waves of the endless stream of doctrines and distractions and ideologies that bombard our mind. And so our only hope of staying grounded on truth, our only hope of real peace, of hope itself and joy is by centering our lives on jesus creating space in our day-to-day life rhythms to allow the spirit to recalibrate to reorient our inner compasses our mind heart and soul and really again our whole bodies real lasting change needs to start from within and this is why jesus targets our hearts he wants our hearts, our whole hearts. He wants to transform our hearts, and that's a good thing, both for us and for those around us. Now, this is why we started our series with Sabbath and silence and solitude, two practices that interrupt our lives, two practices that interrupt the unhealthy cycles in which we live, you know, two practices that cultivate being in and resting in. God's presence. We believe that internal transformation then bears external fruit. It cultivates love for God. It cultivates love for our neighbors, the ability to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious and angst-ridden world. It cultivates an urgency to seek justice for the oppressed and a real desire to reach the lost. Instead of wrap up our so with that, grab your Bibles and please turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verse one. Yes, just yes. verse one. Romans 12, 1. And once you have that, go ahead and stand with me as we read the word of the Lord together. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for this time. Thank you for this word, and thank you for your presence We just invite you now to be among us, to be in us, and to fill us, and to teach us. Would you make us receptive to what you want to say to us today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Now, I know we usually end our time after the teaching with silent reflection, but I actually want to start with that today. So, take a moment. Close your eyes, try not to fall asleep, maybe sit up a little straighter so you can remain alert. I love that. Um, And reflect on this question. Who were your childhood heroes? Who were your childhood heroes? Close your eyes, think about it. It can be one or several, it can be real or fiction, it can be someone you actually knew or, 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 or someone you merely knew of. Who were your childhood heroes and why? I'll give you a second to think about that. Everyone got someone or something? Now open your eyes. Hopefully, you are all able to think of someone. Take a moment to share it with your neighbor. Who was your childhood hero and why? I'll give you a minute for that. Scoot over down that long pew. Who were your childhood heroes and why? All right, everyone discuss something. Everyone have something on their minds. So, who are our heroes? Is it it Spider-Man, is it Batman, is it Ash Ketchum, or is it, I don't know, LeBron James, or Neil deGrasse Tyson, or Malala Yousafzai, or maybe Bruce Lee, or maybe it's, I don't know, a Twitch streamer, which I know very little about, so I'm not even gonna try to reference that. Um, Or, I don't know, a YouTuber, or a social media influencer. Or, or maybe it's someone we know. I heard some people say, hey, it was actually my dad. You know, Maybe it's our mother or our father or our grandparent. Um, a couple years ago, I met the, the World War II vet who survived D-Day and then built the house that I was living in. That was amazing. It was an unforgettable experience. He is a hero. When I was a kid, my heroes were the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I worship them. I love that I'm getting nods in the crowd, this is great. I had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toys, a plastic Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle lunchbox and thermos, slippers, multiple bath towels, and a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle sleeping bag. I remember watching the first movie on VHS, if you know what that is, over and over and over again. And I even remember dancing to the music at the end of the credits with my cousin. And if you know me now, you know I don't dance. So those were the days. Now, why are these figures that we've you know, thought of, why are these figures our heroes? Why were the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles my heroes? Well, very logical. Well, first they were ninjas. That's enough. Second, believe it or not, I was at one point in my life a Californian. I lived there for like two years. And Ninja Turtles, it was a very formative time, Ninja Turtles epitomized everything that was cool about being a Californian. They were laid back. They were chill. Michelangelo skateboarded. I love skateboarding. They love pizza. I love pizza. They said cool Californian things that no one would ever say nowadays, like radical or cowabunga. And lastly, they always won. Let's... Take things a level deeper. Think back to your heroes, ponder this question now. What do they teach you about the reality of life? What life narrative or story do they teach you about the way things work? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles taught me that life should be fun and carefree but that there was also such a thing as good and evil, forces that are always at odds with each other, but at the end of the day, good would always win. And I I probably wouldn't have verbalized it that way as a six-year-old, but that's the life narrative Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles taught me. They gave me an image to strive for and to try to be. They gave me a life narrative, a life story, like this is how the world works. And, as cheesy as it sounds, they gave me hope. Like, you can be cool and carefree, which was really appealing to a scrawny, quiet kid who was too shy to have a lot of friends like me. They taught me you can learn karate and be a ninja and still live off of pizza, as if pizza is conducive to that lifestyle. And they taught me that good guys always win. So, in short, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles gave me a sense of wonder and hope. Most likely without realizing, I worshiped them because they gave me wonder and hope. My life was more than just day day in and day out in kindergarten. My life was more than the random chores I had to do at home. They gave me wonder and hope. And so worship leads to wonder if we worship the right things. We all have heroes, or if not outright heroes, then we all have people or figures that we look up to and, if we're honest, worship to some degree. You might not call it that yourself, but that's essentially what it is, worship. And the fact that we're like this is, is nothing to feel bad about, it's, it's how we're wired. And this is point one, we were created to worship. We're wired to worship, it's just what we do. We all inevitably worship someone or something, a fictional character, a real-life person, a movement or an ideology, an object, or even simply ourselves. In fact, I would argue that everything we worship ends up being a roundabout way of worshiping ourselves, but more on that later. This is just one of the obvious reasons why parents are such a key figure in determining the people we become. They are the people who bring us into the world, the people we look to first for love, care, and an example to follow. And so they're the first people we worship. I am, I am blessed with a great relationship with my parents. When I was a kid, I thought my dad could do anything. He played all sports with me, introduced me to great music, and fixed like, everything in the house. I thought my mom was the coolest. She, she had the best taste in food and clothes, and she had style and sophistication, and I wanted to absorb that. I thought it was cool, and so I, I, I worshipped that. But this is also why parent wounds, an absent parent, a neglectful parent, or an abusive parent, this is why parent wounds are s- tragically such a big part of the forma- formational trauma many of us carry. So on a daily basis, we worship a vast variety of not only people, but also things. And if you're like, worship, I mean, that's a dramatic way to put it. It's actually not. Merriam-Webster's dictionary provides two definitions. The first is this, to honor or show reverence for as a divine being or supernatural power. Okay, so worship is what I show God, right? I hope. The second is this, to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, and devotion. Think of the things you regard with great or extravagant respect. Your heroes, your idols. I hear things like, man, did you see how many points Durant scored in that game? There's my feeble attempt at a sports reference, I'm sorry. (laughs) Or how about something as simple as, hey, nice fit. You stopped, appraised someone's well-assembled outfit and decided to declare words of, as the dictionary definition says, great and extravagant respect and honor. You've just expressed worship to a pair of pants. (laughs) You know, every time you scroll on your phone and double tap, or maybe even maybe even comment, you are showing great and extravagant respect and honor. You are worshiping. You know, back in the Old Testament, people would like have to carve idols and build these altars and and poles. Now we just need to swipe and tap. And now think of the last part of that definition: great and extravagant devotion. How do we express devotion by giving ourselves to it? We express devotion by giving attention, time, energy, and or resources like, or like, like money or, or even gift offerings if it's, if it's a person we admire or, or have a crush on or, or worship. And this isn't a jab at all the single people out there. We worship what we give our attention, time, energy, and resources to. I'll say that one more time. We worship what we give our attention, time, energy, and resources to. And so if you think about it, we inevitably worship someone or something at all times, whether it's Batman or Travis Scott, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your grandma or your grades, your shoe collection, you call it being a sneakerhead, I say worshiper of foot coverings, or your Valorant ranking. Low blows, (laughs) I'm sorry. Is it an ideal beauty or your marketability? Your career or your number of followers? Maybe your personal or family image? You fill in the blank. Just as spiritual formation is an inescapable reality, so is worship. We're always worshiping something and this is why jesus says no one can serve two masters either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other a w tozer who was a great pastor theologian and and someone considered by many to be kind of a modern day prophet writes this god made us to worship that is why we were created Pretty simple, we're wired to worship. Living in constant worship of something is our reality. The question is, what do we worship? And what is it doing to us? Or what is it forming us into? To return to our, you know, our spiritual formation paradigm, the fact that we're always being formed by something, into something good or bad, healthy or unhealthy, Christ-like or very unChristlike, like And since we're always being formed by something into something, and since we're always worshiping constantly, since we're creatures of worship, we inevitably become what we worship. And this is point two. We are formed by worship. We become what we worship. This is why, as I said earlier, worship can lead to wonder if we worship the right thing. If you're a kid living in low-income housing and your hero is LeBron James, who grew up poor and struggling with an absent father who had a criminal record, think of the ways in which you can be formed. You can have hopes and dreams of something greater you can be inspired to dream of and reach for a better life. You can be inspired to work hard at, if not basketball, then academics or some other means in order to achieve and rise above your circumstances. You can strive to be better in order to provide your family things that you, did, that you had that they didn't have, opportunities that you might have that did, they didn't have. If your hero is someone like Amanda Gorman, you know, the, national, the first National Youth Poet Laureate who delivered her poetry at the presidential inauguration last year, you can be inspired to use beautiful words to speak out against oppression, marginalization, and injustice, and that things like gender, race, and age cannot hold you back from making a positive impact in the world. Worship can lead to amazing things, That's why young people need role models. In today's passage, Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Let's stop right there, by the mercies of God. I actually like the way the NIV states it, in view of God's mercies. If, say, LeBron is our hero, what's in our view? The possibility of hopes and dreams, of overcoming adversity and struggle, the possibility of improvement and potential greatness. That's what's in view. And these are are wonderful things. But what about living in view of God's mercies? Think about that. Living with God's mercies, his blessings through Jesus, his forgiveness, his presence, his his salvation, and his love for us always in view. Always on the front of our minds. This sounds like a great way to live. To wake up every day and be flooded with the knowledge and experience of his presence and to be reminded of the love of the Father in heaven all the time. That sounds pretty amazing, you know? I remember when Amanda and I were in the early stages of our relationship, when, when everything was fresh and exciting. Not that it isn't now, praise God, it's always fresh and exciting. But in those early days, something as small and simple as, as waking up to a nice little text message from her would do so much. I was waking up with Amanda's love and attention in view. I was waking up with Amanda's mercies in view, in view of Amanda's mercies. And it was amazing. I would be so excited and so filled with wonder, and then that's how I would start my day. Can anyone relate? With God, just multiply that exponentially. Worship leads to wonder, provided that we worship the right things. But therein lies the problem. We're wired to worship. We will worship someone or something. If not God, then something else. But the trouble is, it's usually something else. This has been the great struggle and downfall of humankind since the very beginning. When Eve was tempted in the garden, remember how the serpent so easily deceived her. First, he got her to question God's words. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any fruit in the garden, of any tree in the garden? And then he flat out lies when he says, you will not surely die. But then he says this, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve's thinking, whoa, when I eat this, I'll be like God? That sounds pretty cool. I no longer have to be under him. I no longer have to live in worship of him. I can live in worship of me. I can be God. The serpent gets Eve to mistrust God. Even though God is the one who created and provides for both her and Adam, the serpent gets her to mistrust God, to to get her to think that God is out for anything but her happiness. And then he tempts her with the possibility of being her own God. Autonomy, self-worship. And guess what? It worked. She fell for it. And Adam, too. Remember, he was there. But the topic of male passivity and the damage it does is for another time. Friends, the serpent diverted Adam and Eve's worship. And the results were disastrous. We know the results. We're living in the fallout of the results. Tozer equates sin to failure to worship God. And we're living in the terrible aftermath of misplaced worship. Worship forms us. And if right worship leads to wonder, if it leads to hope and flourishing, if it leads to beauty and joy, then misplaced worship leads to the opposite. Misplaced worship leads to not wonder, but withering. Friends, the unfortunate reality is that we are living in the results of our own misplaced worship. Worship is forming us. And if we just take a look around, we can see living proof. We are, in fact, becoming what we worship. Is your career your object of worship? Is school or your degree your object of worship? For better or for worse, it's very easy to tell. It's easy to tell by the way you structure your days and your weeks down to the minute. It's especially easy to tell when things like Sabbath or silence and solitude are just so darn difficult. And I don't say that to guilt trip, It's just an observable reality, and we all struggle. It's easy to tell because it's everything you talk about. And don't, again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't talk about it, but again, I'm just making an observation. Everything we talk about revolves around these things. And it usually has to do with how much it's stressing us out and exhausting the heck out of us. That doesn't sound great. And if this is you, ask yourself this. What is the life narrative it's telling you? What's it telling you about how life should work, how the world should work? Well, your identity and worth are based on your performance, your youthfulness, your productivity, your market value, your skills and your talents. It's telling you that your success and your careers are the best paths to having that beautiful life and sense of worth you've always wanted. But at the same time, it's telling you that all your free time is best spent in the office working. And so even when you get that life you thought you wanted, you won't even have the time to enjoy it. Please tell me you see the contradiction. So is this worship leading to wonder or is it leading to withering? Ask yourself this and answer honestly. Is it filling you? Is it bringing you peace? Is it bringing you joy? And will it ever be? Here's a scary thought, you can be in church and worship the wrong thing. You can be a lifelong church goer or a nominal Christian and never worship God. You can be at every Sunday service merely to worship the Sunday experience. Like, man, music is great, I love Thomas, I can really feel God. Or, man, the energy is kind of weak here, no one raises their hands, 10% of the people are singing, It's, it's not doing it for me, I better go somewhere else. Are you worshiping God or the experience? Are you becoming, are you being formed into, a lover of Jesus or just another, or is church just another place where you can come and be a consumer? We become what we worship. To the gamers, we can see you're becoming a gamer. You're standing in a circle of friends and you're still on your phone and you can't get away. Even when I give you an awkward look, you either turn away or ignore me altogether. It's okay, no shame, I get it a lot. To the aspiring social media influencer, we can see where your worship is going. You're hardly present with your friends, but we can see all the brightest parts of your life through your stories and TikTok clips. But what's the narrative it's telling you? Is it telling you that you, a young college student from a small suburban town, can be recognized as a celebrity without telling you the costs? Is it telling you that you can make good money and then enjoy the things that it, along with status, can get you, all the while getting you to ignore the fact that, again, you won't have the time to actually enjoy the life you think you want because you'll be too busy trying to keep up that social media persona and presence. Is it showing you all the fame and the glory all the while skirting around the fact that it'll probably cost you your soul? It's like the serpent says, you will not surely die, right? Your journey to league greatness or your quest towards that blue check by your Instagram handle, what is it doing to you? What is it forming you into? Is it enriching your real life relationships? Is it filling you? Is it filling and enriching the lives of those around you? Is it bringing you peace? Is it bringing you joy? And will it ever be enough? Will it ever be enough followers? And what if you find yourself losing followers? What if one day you get 101 likes instead of 120? Will you be able to shrug it off and say, whatever? You're probably thinking 120, that's sad Brooks, aim higher. We hear stories and we see statistics on how social media does so much more damage than the quick spurts of pleasure it gives. You will not surely die, right? And friends, when you think about it, as I hinted earlier, no matter what we worship, no matter who we worship, the things we worship in some roundabout way always end up being about us. That guy or girl you worship who you wish would notice you, don't you wish they would like you back and fulfill your desire? That job title you worship and crave, isn't that so that you can feel good about yourself and live the life you think you want to live? That game you worship, how badly you crave those high scores and ratings. That social media habit, is it anything more than creating envy in others and garnering likes and follows for yourself? Like, like me, follow me. Except it's usually a cute little voice like, remember to like and follow. Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, But understand this, that in the last days, that's now, there will be times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Paul unloads. But it's scarily so true. And the things we worship and want. Notice how there are things that usually point to the idea, the lie, that we can do it and achieve it on our own. Just do it without God. We don't want to need God. We don't want to have to depend on him. We, like Eve, want autonomy. But church, again I ask, what are these things that we worship forming us into? Are they forming us into things of beauty? into reflections of the character of Christ, or are they forming us into withering, stressed-out, self-absorbed, status-hungry people? And honestly, do these things that we worship ever deliver? Someone answer me this. Since when did our success, status, or possessions, our worshipability, become worth more than our mental, emotional, physical, not to mention our spiritual health? When did these things become worth more than our soul? When did these idols become worth more than the beautiful, life-giving, soul-satisfying relationship we could have with God? Do the simple math. Do these things allow us to live in view of God's mercies? In view of the cross? In view of the love of Jesus for us? In view of his constant presence and faithfulness? Do these things allow us to live with his peace, hope, love, and joy always in view? Or do they only obscure these things so much that we even forget we have access to them? that we forget that we actually do have access to peace, hope, love, and joy right now. If we look around the world, you know, even in Christian circles, it looks like we've lost sight of the access we have to real peace, hope, love, and joy. We've lost view of God's mercies. And as a result, we are withering. We live lives devoid of peace, hope, love, and joy. And by extension, we bring very little of these things to anyone else. Hear me. This is not life as it was intended to be. No matter what ideology gets preached at you, No matter what the world tells you, this is not life as it was intended to be. This is why things like Sabbath, God has to command that. And like Sabbath, God has to command our worship. In Exodus 20, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, this is a prime example of my mercies. Live in view of this. And then he goes on to say, you shall have no other gods before me. Worship me alone. Jesus echoes this when he's tempted by Satan in the desert. He quotes Deuteronomy and says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus then tells us the great commandment is to first love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And this takes us to point three. Why worship? Let's cut to the chase. God creates us to worship and then commands it. Let's be honest. Anyone find that a little self-absorbed? Like... Is, is God just some needy megalomaniac who is dying for our praise, adoration, and affirmation? Is he, like us, just starved for likes and follows? Is this cool? Well, the short answer is yes. We worship him because he is worthy. God created us for worship and commands us to worship, and this is is as it should be because God is the only one who is actually worthy of all our worship. And here's why. First, God is holy. Revelation states, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is holy pure and holy. He is morally perfect. He is almighty. He is past, present, and future, the beginning and the end. And for as good of a reason as that is, that is just too hard for us to wrap our limited minds around. But it means that, yes, he is totally worthy of all of our worship. But if that's not enough, there's also the fact that he loves us like no other. He is a God who is not only all-powerful, all-knowing. He's not only our creator and the one who upholds our lives. He's the God who comes down to be with us. A holy God coming down to be with us on our level. God lives among us as a man, Jesus. He lives with us. He feels our pain and endures the same toil that we do. And then out of his great love for us, dies for us on the cross. Perfect love proven. So yeah, God is the only one worthy of our worship. Yes, he can command our worship. And yes, he does deserve every ounce of it. But friends, we must realize, we must realize that the command to worship is at its heart a command of love. The command to worship is a command of love. He commands this of us because he loves us. In the same way, he commands us to observe Sabbath for our own good, so that we would come to know and enjoy rest in him and actually experience renewal in him. He commands our worship for our good. To understand this, let's look back to Exodus. When God appears to Moses in the burning bush, he declares, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. He's reminding Moses of who he is. After the Israelites are rescued out of Egypt, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, essentially a festival of worship, is instituted as an act of remembrance. And Moses says to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery by a strong hand. The Lord brought you out from this place. Professor Dr. Robert Weber writes this. The theme of remembering is central to biblical worship. The epicenter for worship with Israel was the central saving event of the exodus. And with the church, that's us, it is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Therefore, in view of God's mercies. For the Israelites, God's mercies were his saving acts, delivering them from Egypt by his mighty hand. For us, it isn't so different. We also experience God's mercies as an act of deliverance and salvation, except that for us, It's the saving work of Jesus Christ. Remembrance is at the heart of worship. We worship to remember. In Exodus and on through the rest of the Old Testament, God continually declares again and again, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Because the simple truth is that God's people are forgetful. The simple reality is that we are forgetful. We need help remembering who our true God is. We have too many, just too many idols vying for attention, vying for his rightful throne in our hearts. It makes total sense that the second commandment is have no idols. As we know from firsthand experience, idols obscure our view of God and of his mercies. They divert our worship, just as Satan diverted Eve's worship. And so let's get back to the main point. God commands us to worship because he loves us. He commands us to worship him for our good. Yes. Again, remembrance at the heart of worship. Think about that. When we worship God, we become people who remember God and what he's done. We remember his mercy and grace offered to us. We remember Jesus and his atoning sacrifice for us. We have the cross in view. We remember the character of God, which is holiness. We remember the character of God, which is pure, perfect love. And we remember that he lavishes that love on us. We remember that we are his beloved that he knew and loved us before we were even born. We remember his very real presence and the fact that we have access to our Heavenly Father at all times and that he wants us and invites us to come to him and to find all that we need in him. We remember that the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us. Worship of the worthy one leads to wonder. We remember his constant faithfulness, just as it did for the Israelites. Worship points us to his faithfulness, past and present, and it tells us that he will continue to be faithful in the future. So friends, God's mercies are the reason for worship, but they're also the blessing of worship. God's mercies are the reason for worship, but they're also the blessing of worship. Because worshiping God wakes us up to the reality of his goodness and love. When we worship God, these are the things that we have in view. These are the things that we get to wake up to and live into day in and day out. Doesn't it sound amazing to live each day of your lives being reminded of of the love that the almighty creator has for you? Doesn't it, doesn't it sound amazing to be reminded that the God of the universe wants to be with you in every moment? To live in view of this, to live in constant worship of God and by extension, constant remembrance of these things. Does this not sound like the best way to live? And what are the results? Well, we get to live in constant gratitude and joy, knowing that we are recipients of the greatest love. We would live in assurance of his love for us, which would then free us from the need to perform for people. This is something that I always have to fight to remember. We would live in assurance of his sovereignty. This frees us from the need to control everything. We would be assured of his presence, This means that in every moment, in every triumph, as well as every tragedy, through the highs and the lows, we have full assurance that he is with us. We are not alone, and there is redemption. Do you see how worship, when directed to the worthy one, leads to a life of wonder? When we live in worship of God, we gain correct perspective. We know our place in relation to his sovereignty. We know our place in his kingdom. We know we are heirs, sons and daughters in his family. And so when we worship, we become grounded in our true identity. And with this knowledge, friends, comes peace. True peace that cannot be taken away. With this love comes joy to the full. And as we submit to his rule, we find hope in the fact that he's constantly renewing us and that he will one day return to make all things new. These are the fruits of true worship. So why why not worship the worthy one who says to us, I love you, I gave my life for you, rather than worshiping the thing that says, give your life to me, but that only brings death. To conclude, let us return to what Paul writes. I appeal to you, therefore brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The Greek word used here and throughout the New Testament is this word soma, which means body, but it expresses wholeness of body, our entire being, worship with our entire being. So what does that mean? What does it mean to worship God with our entire beings, with all that we are? We'll have time again today to reflect and to brainstorm together after this teaching. But for starters, I'll say that worship can be done in all things at all times. We can worship God in all that we do with all that we are. So how can we live in constant worship? Does it mean blasting Hillsong all the time? Sure, it can be that. Listening to music that praises God and speaks of his character and work reminds us of just that, his character and work. So we can praise God with our ears. Along the same vein, we can read or listen to scripture or or literature that speaks of who God is and who we are in relation to him. We can worship with our voices. Singing is obvious, but we can do more than just that. We can pray on our commutes in the car, We can pray in our rooms, we can pray on our morning runs, we can pray for the person sitting next to us on the bus. That is worship. We can encourage a friend that is caring for and speaking life into a fellow image bearer, loving a neighbor. That is worship. You can offer words of peace to a colleague feeling crushed by anxiety. That is worship. We can worship with our hands, lift your hands toward God as you pray or Or worship. This isn't an emotional thing that only certain people do, like the the really devout people. It's not an emotional thing. It's a posture of humility, desire, and yearning that we can all practice. But it doesn't stop there. Use your hands for, for practical good, help your elderly neighbor with errands. That is worship. We can worship God with our eyes. We can choose what we take in with our eyes. We can can choose what we watch on Netflix or TikTok. We know what's healthy and unhealthy for us. Jesus states, "The the, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Honor God with your eyes. When we practice silence and solitude as we talked about last week, we are offering God our body, mind, heart and soul, not to mention our time and simply enjoying his presence. That is worship. When we practice Sabbath, resting in him and trusting that he is our source of life and renewal, that is worship. When we do life in community, when we immerse ourselves in in loving relationships with people who are both easy and hard to love, we are worshiping. When we were looking out for the needs of our community and being a Christ-like presence there, that is worship. And friends, these are just starting points. But the point is, we can live in constant worship. And let me be 100% honest with you. This is, in fact, the best way To live. To live in constant view of the God who loves us. To live in constant view of his mercy and grace. And to surrender ourselves to him, resting in that love and in his promises. This is peace. This is joy to the full. This is our source of hope. So true worship, worship of God, our Heavenly Father, the only worthy one, leads to wonder. It leads to a life full of wonder at every turn. So friends, surround yourselves with God and the things of God. Surround your lives with the things of God. Surround every moment with the things of God. Let us choose lives of wonder. Let us worship him. Would you stand with me now as we pray? Go ahead and close your eyes and just to put teaching into practice with eyes closed. I want to encourage you, even if you've never done this before, to just lift your hands upward in a posture of devotion, yearning, and humble worship. We believe that physical postures help to orient our inner posture. Just lift up your hands, be bold. Jesus, you are the only one worthy of all of our worship, Lord, of all of our devotion, our time, and our energy. And we just thank you so much that when we live lives of worship that you honor that and you renew us. We thank you that when we worship you, our gazes get redirected to who you are, holy, loving. And we, our, our attention gets redirected to who we are in you, your beloved children. And so, Spirit, we just ask that you would move us to live lives in worship of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.